Okay, there's a, there's a couple. Yeah, we, I mean, everybody likes Dateline a little bit, right? So, you know, I kind of dig a mystery show that's just kind of like the classic case of who, uh, uh, whoa, the, the, the classic case of, of who done it. You know, what I, you know what I'm talking about? It may be bad English, but it makes for a cool little saying, you know, the, a classic case of who done it. You know, a crime happens and, and you're just there trying to figure out, you know, which one of these sorry suckers in this show did that, you know. And, you know, in, in Dateline, the, the sad reality is it's actually pretty easy to figure out because 90% of the time the husband did it, you know, <laughs> I mean... As bad as that as bad as that sounds, if you just played the math, I'd love to know the percentages, but I'm pretty sure it's it's something like that. But I, I was hooked on that show for a while, and and what we have this morning in the passage that we're studying in First Thessalonians, it's a classic case of who done it, and, and and so I'm looking forward to to diving into that with you guys this morning. But before we get too far down the road in this classic case of of who done it. First, like any good mystery, we've got to start with the backstory. It's number one on your study sheet. We've got to start with the backstory. Any good who done it starts with the backstory. You'll you'll hear Lester Holt say, you know, something like, "It was a crisp day off the coast of California, a day that most people would spend holding hands and and walking." on the beach, and, and Jessica's about to, to finish work and was planning to do just that. Oh, but not today. <laughs> today would go down as a crisp fall day, but the kind of crisp fall day that sends chills down your spine. <laughs> you know, the, you know so, or something, something like that, anyway. But, but you've got to get the back story and the, and the events that are leading up to this crime. So what were the events that were leading up to this crime in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? There's a, there's a crime that's going to take place, and the backstory that leads up to that is this. There's a group of people named Paul, Silas, and Timothy that are proactively pursuing the mission. That's, that's the backstory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 17 says... But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. If you'll recall, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were like this verse says. They were taken from them for a short period of time. And the reason they were taken from them for that period of time is because they were fleeing persecution. Back in Acts, we got that backstory of Paul, Silas, and Timothy going to Thessalonica, and they were reaching the Thessalonians with the, with the gospel. And what we learn in Acts 17 is that this persecution came to Thessalonica, and, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy, man, they headed out of there fleeing persecution, and they headed into Berea, and they gave the Bereans the gospel, and, and many of them came to saving faith. But the Thessalonians that didn't believe were still so worked up and they were still so ticked off that they actually followed them. They actually followed Paul, Silas, and Timothy to Berea. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy fled Berea to Athens. 
Okay, but as all of this is going on, in the meantime, they're desperately wanting to get back to the Thessalonians. They, they had to leave so abruptly. In, in 1 Thessalonians 3.10 tells us that, that they wanted to get back to the Thessalonians so bad so that they could perfect that which is lacking in your faith or perfect that which was lacking in their faith. So, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were, they were proactively pursuing the mission. That's the, that's the back story of this classic case of whodunit. And it was for the specific purpose of perfecting that which was lacking in their faith. And, and I think you've got a, a, a blank for that as well, to perfect that which is lacking in their faith. They wanted to continue discipling the Thessalonians, and they wanted to to build them up and establish them in the faith, and they wanted to perfect them in the faith. And, and, and as we read verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 2 again, I want you to notice how passionately and proactively they were trying to see the Thessalonians. It says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored... They, and they didn't just endeavor or, or make an effort or, or labor to see them. They endeavored the more abundantly. They, they more than made an effort to see them. To see your face, it says, and in case we weren't getting the drift, it says they endeavored more abundantly with great desire. That's, that's how they approach this thing. Listen, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they understood the proactive command of the Great Commission, and they were passionate about that. They understood that when Jesus gave them the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, that when he said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, that he actually meant go. They understood that command required to get out there and to actively do something. And, and, and isn't that just natural to do, though, when it's something that you genuinely want? Isn't that just the natural thing? Is anybody going to go out tomorrow morning and get after it so that we can make a few bucks tomorrow? Anybody going <laughs> to? Well, of course we are, but we like to put it on autopilot with the spiritual things, though. We, we don't do it much with the physical, but with the spiritual, we're, we're pretty laid back. We're pretty nonchalant and chill. Hey, if God flings open a door, great, but we're not going to ever work to get a ministry opportunity with someone to share our faith. We're not going to get worked up either if we don't have those type of opportunities that come in our lives. And we, we, we have this approach, and, and we wonder why over the course of of a year, two years, five years, and ten years, we lack opportunity to share our faith. And part of the reason is because God told us to go, and we never make any proactive moves to do that. You say, relax, buddy. Don't get too worked up about the Great Commission. God is in control. And, you know, you're right. Just, just pray for open doors, and when he gives them, he gives them. And we should definitely pray for that. I'm with, with that. But like a wise man once said, God is in control, 
but he doesn't expect you to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. You know what I mean? And simply put, the words of Christ were to proactively go, and that's what God has called us to do. And you see Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they understood that. And this is why you see them laboring like that. This is why you see that passion to get back to the Thessalonians and, and to perfect that which was lacking in their faith. They, in, they, endeavor, they, were endeavoringly, they were endeavoring abundantly with great desire. And, and that's the backstory of our classic case of, of who'd done it. But, but here's the part of the story where the crime is committed, right? Just like any good dateline. You, you get the backstory first and they set the stage and then you, you, find, you find out what, so a little more about the crime. Number, number two on your outline, the crime. And we see the crime in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But to get a running start, pick up in verse 17. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, and here's the crime, but, but Satan hindered us. Okay, so the backstory is, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're proactively pursuing the mission. They're wanting to establish and perfect the Thessalonians in the faith. And then what happens? Satan shows up and Satan hinders them. Satan hindered the ministry. Okay, so, so Satan is the one who commits the crime. And you say, well, sheesh, that was, a, that was an easy one to figure out. You know, that was easy. It was, the, who the perp was is, is was right, it's right there in the verse, and, and that's true. But, but listen, there, there's a part of that that's not so clear, though. How did Paul know that it was Satan hindering? The who done it is Satan, but how'd they know he did it? Be, be, because did you know that the Holy Spirit does similar things sometimes? In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 7, when, when talking about Paul and Timothy, it says that now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were, what's that? Forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Verse 7, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but what happened? The Spirit suffered them not. So, so Paul and Timothy, they try to go to two different places for the purpose of preaching the word, mind you. And in each of these instances, the Holy Spirit keeps them from going where they were wanting to go. So the, the Spirit is redirecting or, or hindering them from going where they want to go. Now, that sounds a whole lot like what Satan just did back in 1 Thessalonians, doesn't it? Paul, Silas, and Timothy would have gone back to Thessalonica after having been run out of town, but they were having trouble because Satan was hindering them. But back in Acts 16, Paul and Timothy had a similar experience when attempting to go to Asia and Bithynia, except in, in, in those cases, it was the Holy Spirit that wouldn't let them. So I think the obvious question is, 
how did Paul, Silas, and Timothy know the difference? Because Paul and Timothy had experienced that same thing, and somehow they knew. This time it's Satan. Last time it was the Holy Spirit. And let me just tell you, that's all the difference in the world, because if the Holy Spirit is forbidding you to go somewhere or to do something, then you want to be sure to listen and not attempt to kick open a door that's a hundred feet thick. But if Satan is hindering you from going somewhere or doing something, then you want to make sure that there's a work persistently to go wherever it is that Satan's trying to keep you from going and to do whatever it is that Satan's trying to keep you from doing. So how do you know the difference? You see, this crime was committed before DNA testing was available. So they couldn't just look at the DNA here at the scene of the crime, and they couldn't prove from that that it was Satan. Uh, yeah, we have a full fingerprint here at the scene of the crime. Kind of looks like a dragon claw a little bit. Let me guess, it was Satan again, wasn't it? You nailed it. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite that easy. It wasn't an open and shut case because based on the evidence, it could have been the Holy Spirit or it could have been Satan that was hindering or forbidding them from going back to Thessalonica. So how they know it was Satan, and in order for us to understand how they knew that, I think it's important that we understand who Satan is. And I think it's important that we get some insights into Satan. Some insights into Satan, letter A. Now listen carefully, because what we're covering this morning, it, it isn't just helping solve our, our mystery or our classic case of who done it. It's, it's giving us insight into how Satan is working in this world and in our lives, and it can help us make sense of everything going on around us. It, you see, it's important. It's extremely important that we understand how Satan operates. And, and we could spend a lot of time here, but we're, we're just going to cover some of the high points and some of the big picture things, because we could spend weeks on this. But I think some of the big picture things will help us get a grasp on how Satan rolls. And, and, and the importance of this is laid out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10, where, where here's what Paul says. He says, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Why? Verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You see, it's very important that we're not ignorant of what Satan's devices are, or that we're not ignorant of how satan is operating out there and, and we need to know that because according to the first part of verse 11 here satan's going to get an advantage of us if we don't do you see that if we don't understand how satan operates he's going to have a huge advantage over us and paul wasn't ignorant of satan's devices but most christians are extremely ignorant of satan's devices and as a result Satan has a huge advantage. You know how you get a huge advantage in sports? When the dogs know the plays of the gators and the gators don't know the plays of the dogs. <laughs> That's right. 
That's a, that's a huge advantage. <laughs> and, and Satan knows what makes us tick. We see that all the way back when he manipulated Eve in, in the Garden of Eden. But do we know what makes Satan tick? Do, do we know about our enemy? It's important that we do, lest he get an advantage of us. And so, and so we can decipher who it is that's actually working in our lives. And, and the first thing I'd like us to see is, number one on your study sheet, what we need to know about Satan is, is that he wants to be like the Most High. He wants to be like the Most High. Prior to Lucifer's fall in Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 13, it says that, that Lucifer was actually physically composed of precious stones. It's kind of a crazy thing to, to try to imagine. But the, the name Lucifer, you realize it actually means light bearer. And that's quite literally what he did. He was bearing or reflecting the light. Now, who's the light? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So Lucifer, the light bearer, was reflecting the light of God through those precious stones that he was comprised of. I mean, can you imagine this scene? The light of God is, is flowing through this being made of all these precious stones, reflecting every color of the rainbow. And, and this same verse says that Lucifer was also comprised of musical instruments. It says he's comprised of tabrets and pipes. You see, he didn't need an instrument of praise. He was the instrument. And, and he led the angelic host of heaven in singing praises to our God. You see, God has always wanted beings that would reflect his light and be an instrument of praise. But, but this same chapter in Exodus 28 teaches us that there was a day that iniquity was found in Lucifer. He, he was perfect up until then, but he, he clearly used his free will to sin against God. Listen, true love can't exist in a world where free will doesn't. Otherwise, we're all robots. So, so Lucifer, he used that free will, and he used it to sin against God. And we find that in more detail in Isaiah 14. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the, the, the five I wills that, that Satan said in his heart in this chapter of Isaiah. But I, I want us to see him from another angle this morning. Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How, how art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. That's the first I will. And by that he was saying he wanted to share in the highest heavenly position. He wasn't satisfied with the place that God had given him. And next he said... I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And by that, he was saying he wanted the right to rule. That's what you do from a throne. He wanted the position and he wanted the possession of a throne of his own to rule over the stars of God, which is a reference to angelic beings. Then he says, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And listen, that phrase, the mount, 
back in Isaiah chapter 2 is Mount Zion, which is described as being the seat that the Messiah will sit in as he rules the earth. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I not only want to share the position of the Father in heaven, I want to share the position of the Messiah as he rules the earth. Do you see that pride? Look at the fourth I will in verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. This was revealing his desire to share in the glory that belongs to God alone. And, and we discover that when we compare Scripture with Scripture, that, that the word clouds is used in the Bible in Exodus 16.10, for example, to describe the, the glory of the Lord is always, is always present in the clouds. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud in Exodus 16.10. And in the New Testament, Luke 21, 27 says they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud in power and great glory. And you just see that thing over and over again in the Bible. In the clouds, you see God's presence and his power. And Lucifer saying, I want to share in that glory that's due to God alone. But all of these are summed up in the fifth, I will. I will be like the most high and the most high is connected to being the possessor of heaven and earth in in genesis 14 22 he he says he says and abram said to the king of sodom i have lift up my hand unto the lord the most high god the possessor of heaven and earth that most high is connected to being the possessor of heaven and earth. Lucifer wanted to be like the Most High and to gain the authority of heaven and earth. He wanted to be like God, but God kicked his sorry rear end out of heaven, and instead of getting what he wanted, he lost what he had. Because God no longer refers to him as Lucifer after that or as the light bearer, though he does sometimes give the appearance of light. Because he didn't bear God's light anymore. God calls him quite a few other things and instead. He, he calls him Satan, which means adversary. Or the devil, which means accuser. God will also use descriptive titles instead of proper names. He, he calls him a murderer. He calls him the father of lies. The evil one. The prince of the world. The lowercase g, God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. So that's who he was, and it gives us some insight into what makes Satan tick. That's who he was and how he ultimately came to be who he is now. He wanted to be like the Most High. Next, I want us to see how powerful he is. In order to get some insight in, into Satan and how he operates in our lives and in the world, it's important for us to see his power. Number two, he's powerful. But how, but how powerful is he really? You, you see, God made Lucifer extremely powerful for the purpose of fulfilling his duties as the anointed cherub that covereth, as he was called. And, and though he fell from being perfect and, and from that position, listen, his power remained intact. 
And so now he uses that power, though, for his wicked purposes. So, so he has supernatural power, and we need to know that he's very powerful. But it's also important that we know that he's not all-powerful. That's a designation that belongs only to God. Also, we, we need to know that, that he knows a lot, but he's not all-knowing. For example, we, we don't have reason to believe that he can read our minds. Only, only God is all-knowing. And then we need to know that though he's, he's very fast, he's not omnipresent. He, he's not everywhere at one time like God is. He's, he's very fast, though, and he has a lot of demonic helpers that are also very fast. But, but again, he can't be everywhere at once like God is. And, and it's important that we know what our opponent, or, or in this case, our, our enemy's strengths and weaknesses are, and understand these things, and, and, and having these insights into who Satan is, because it's giving us insight into how Paul, Silas, and Timothy were able to decipher who done it, and who committed the crime, or who it was that was hindering them from going back to minister to the Thessalonians. Another insight into Satan that's important that we understand is he's the God of this world. He's the God of this world. He's the lowercase g, God of this world. We, we, we saw that earlier in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that, that he's referred to as the God of this world. He's the one behind this sick and twisted world's system that has attempted to take everyone in this room and everyone that's ever lived down for the count. This world has a course, and Satan is the head of it. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 2 says it that way. It says, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience that course is a course we were all on at one point do you realize that it almost sent every one of us to hell this verse shows us there's a spirit at work behind that course that the world is trying to put us on it refers to to satan here as the the prince of the power of the air the, the, the heir is, is the seed of his kingdom as the, as the God of this world. But I, but I want us to see something very interesting related to Satan being the God of this world. And, and if you listen, I think this will help make a lot of things make a lot more sense to you. In, in John 16, 11, just before Jesus is crucified, Jesus says that Satan will be judged. In Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15, it tells us that all the sins that, that we will ever commit were nailed up to that cross. And, and in verse 15, it says, God spoiled the principalities and powers, and he triumphed over them. In, in, other, words, in other words, Satan got shown up in front of everybody. Then in, in Hebrews 2.14, it, it says in the second half of the verse that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, 
That is the devil. So, okay, so listen, through the cross, Satan and his demons came to judgment. They were triumphed over. They would be destroyed. But Ephesians 2, 2 that we looked at a few minutes ago says he's the prince of the power of the air right now. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that we also just looked at says he's the God of this world right now. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and he's doing that right now. Now, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? I thought through Jesus' death, God triumphed over Satan, but here he is roaming around like a roaring lion trying to figure out who he can devour. So how does that work exactly? And I think going back and seeing something in the Old Testament is going to help us to understand how this works. You see, the Old Testament is a picture book, and it's an incredible one. At that, It's filled with countless pictures and types that are painting pictures and pointing to New Testament truths. In John 5 and verse 46, Jesus says, listen, that Moses wrote of me. Well, that's really interesting because when you look back at the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote, you won't see Jesus' name in there a single solitary time. But what we discover is that Jesus, as well as other New Testament truths and doctrines, are pictured all over the Old Testament. And one of those instances is in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, in verse 5, Israel, they're, they're wanting to be like the other nations. You remember this? They're wanting to be like the other nations, and we want a king to rule over us like all the other nations have. And then in, in 1 Samuel 9 and verse 2, just a chapter later, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Saul. And the last part of the verse says in 1 Samuel 9, 2, that from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any other people. Listen, Saul, Saul was the big dog, right? He, he, was, the, he was the cream of the crop. He, but, but, but God isn't just wanting to show us, listen, about this dude's height. Listen, Saul's a picture. He's a picture of another that was head and shoulders above all the created beings of heaven. You know who that could be? In chapter 10 of, verse, of 1 Samuel, Saul is anointed king. And not long after that, Saul disobeys God, or in keeping consistent with the picture, iniquity was found in him, just like we saw in Ezekiel about Lucifer. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 15, in verse 26, Samuel says this to Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And so, listen, Saul is rejected as king, and God anoints a different king, but this time it's someone that God chooses. And that, of course, is, is David. And we know that David is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Remember, Jesus came to ultimately sit on the throne of David. But, but check this out. David is anointed king in 1 Samuel 16, 13, it says. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came on David from that day forward. Okay, so listen. David, are you tracking with me? You got li- a listener. I'm going to lose you on some of this. The David has now been anointed as king. So David is king, but we need to see is that even though David is God's choice and has been anointed as king, Saul is still sitting on the throne in Israel. And and is still recognized as the king long after God had rejected him and after David had been anointed as king. David doesn't take the throne until 2 Samuel chapter 2. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, David is anointed, but the judgment isn't executed right then. So there's a period of time between David being anointed as king and Saul actually being banished as king. David has been anointed by God, But Saul usurps the power of the throne for a season, and he sits there. And God doesn't come in and take the kingdom from Saul, even though he's lost the title to it. He doesn't step in after after losing the title and give it right to David. There's a period of time where the power is Saul's, but the title is David's. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Here's the picture. Even though Satan was judged and sentenced on the cross and and, and the the penalty, though, has not yet been fully carried out. And now he rules on the earth as a usurper, still exercising power, even though the title has been taken from him. And though Jesus ascended back to the Father after being raised from the dead, and he is seated right now, enthroned in glory at the right hand of the Father, he won't actually take the seat on the throne until the millennium. It's still a future reality, and then he comes with all of his power on the earth. And I believe it's very important for us to understand because when you understand that, listen, you understand the warfare. There's a major war that's going on. Satan is usurping the power and he's going to do it until the Lord Jesus Christ takes care of him for good. We need to understand, y'all, he still has power here as the God of this world. Satan hindered Paul, Silas, and Timothy from ministering to the Thessalonians like they wanted to do, and he was successful at it. You remember why Ephesians 6.11 teaches us to put on the whole armor of God? You remember why that is, though? We know where to do it, but why? So that we can stand against the wiles of the devil because the devil be wiling out there. (laughs) That may or may not be what wiles means, but we're going to roll with it. He's, wiles means he's tricking, right? He's, he's, he's lying in wait. But no matter how much power Satan has, it always comes back to this. Listen, 
it always comes back to 1 John 4.4. 4. 1 John 4.4. 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He that is in the world is Satan. <laughs> That's who's in the world. In the previous verse in 1 John 4, 3, it's called the, the spirit of Antichrist that's in the world. It's the spirit behind the world system. Again, we were all a part of it at one point. God snatched us out of there. And like John 17, 14 teaches, now we're in the world, but we're not of it anymore. Through faith in Christ, we've been released from that power it held over us. The world that the world had on us, and now we can stand against the wiles and the attacks of the devil. But we have to understand, Satan is much more powerful than we could ever hope to be on our own. So the, the victory is found in Jesus Christ. And, and here are some of the ways that he attacks. Number four on your outline. He attacks the lost. He attacks the lost. He attacks those that don't believe. And, and, and there very well could be someone in this room today who's never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus to save you. And if that's you, man, I am praying that your eyes will be open this morning to what's really going on out there in the world. Because Satan is attacking you. Do you know that? Satan is attacking you. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4 again. In whom the God of this world, what's he doing? Hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. You know what makes it so hard when your eyes are blinded by Satan to the truth of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's that you're in a warfare and you don't even know it. And the blinders can most certainly come off as they have for so many people in this room. But Satan is actively working to keep you blind. There, there, there are a lot of people out there that we would consider to be good people that have never recognized their need for a savior. Man, if that's you this morning, I am praying that the blinders will come off because Satan is working against you right now. Something else about Satan that, that gives us insight into who he is and how he works is, is understanding, number five, that he attacks believers. He attacks believers. We, we already saw from Ephesians 6 and verse 11 that he attacks us with wiles. He's scheming and laying in wait to deceive. Uh, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26, he also attacks us with snares. He attacks us with snares. Snares are, are, are like traps. Listen, Satan cannot make us sin, but he, even though he can't make us sin, he knows mankind and he is very familiar with how we operate. And he may even know you specifically and understand where your weaknesses are. And he's setting a trap for you so he can take you captive, so he can Bind us up. Now that we're saved, no one can undo that, and Satan can't undo that either, but he will set up traps for us to expose our weaknesses and debilitate us so that we're not used to impact the kingdom moving forward. 
Maybe his snare for you are, are circumstances that you're struggling to walk through by faith. Maybe it's lust that you continue to feed. Maybe Satan keeps reminding you of your past so that it discourages you and weighs you down. But regardless of whatever, whatever it is, we need to understand he's setting traps for us. He's, he's setting snares for us. In Ephesians 6.16, we learn Satan wants to shoot fiery darts at us. And these ain't the fiery darts from Mario Brothers, boys and girls. He wants to shoot fiery darts at us. Like we saw in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, he's seeking like a roaring lion to devour us. And like our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he wants to hinder our ministry. So listen. Here's the insights we've seen about Satan. He wants to be like God. He's using the power he was once given by God and is the God of this world. He's on the prowl and he's hunting and he wants to blind unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. And he wants to, and he wants to bind believers so that we aren't useful after receiving the gospel. He wants to keep us defeated. And there's, and there's more we could cover, but that gives us a really good idea of who it is that we're dealing with. And understanding our enemies so that he doesn't get an advantage over us will help us understand what's going on out there in that crazy world and what's going on in our lives. Because 2 Corinthians 2.11, it it teaches us, again, if we're ignorant of his devices, Satan's going to get an advantage of us. And these insights are going to help us discern this morning in our classic case of who done it, how Paul, Silas, and Timothy knew when it was Satan hindering them or God redirecting them. Is God closing the door or is Satan hindering you? We need to understand these motivations and patterns that Satan works through. You say, but, but how, how can you know for sure? Give me, a, give me a nugget that makes it easy. Well, doggone it, why are, we always, you know, why are we always trying to make it easy? You know? I mean, we all want the easy button, right? What's, the, what's that commercial? The, the, easy, the, e, the easy button? Give me the shortcut and the cliff notes, would you? I don't want to read the whole book. And not to sound too much like something that your dad would have said, but in life there are no shortcuts, y'all. I'll show you what I mean, because letter B, here it, we, we're going to look at some insights into God. Insights into God. You see, there aren't shortcuts with God. We have a book that, that as we've seen this morning, it, it teaches us about the patterns of Satan. And we have a book that also teaches us about the power of God and the patterns of God. And, and when we get into his word and, and his word gets into us and we study to show ourselves approved unto God, we begin to know God. <laughs> Number one, we need, what we need to know about him is that he wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to have a relationship with us where we truly know him. 
Not where we just take our fire insurance and stick it in our pocket and go. He wants us to know him. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3.10. He understood this. He says, that I may know him. That's what he desired. That's what a relationship is. It's truly knowing someone else. You ever have someone that was just so close to you, whether it be a spouse or or a friend, and someone else tells you something that they said or something that, that they did, and you immediately know, Something doesn't smell right with that. You know, you know that, that either isn't true or there's a whole lot more to the story because you know them. Jesus is, is, is telling a, a parable in, in John chapter 10 and verse 4, and, and I want us to listen to what he says. John 10, 4. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. And the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him. For they know not the voice of strangers. Now listen, there's a lot going on prophetically in this passage, in, 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 the, in this parable. But from a devotional or from a practical standpoint, as the Lord our shepherd goes before us and leads the way and we're following his following him with our lives we'll know his voice and according to verse 5 knowing his voice also gives us clarity when there's a stranger's voice that's in the mix for example the devil so as we follow god and as we as we walk with him as he leads we can distinguish the difference between the voices that are at work because God's Word teaches us how Satan operates and God teaches us through His Word how we know God. And as we follow Him, we can know when it's God redirecting our path or it's Satan hindering our path. Now keep in mind, Satan is hindering us setting up roadblocks for the purpose of defeating us and stopping us. The difference is God sets up roadblocks to redirect us and open new doors. Satan is wanting to close a door and keep that baby closed. God's wanting to close a door in order to open up another one. But there's no shortcuts of knowing, though. But grasping what we've just covered is how we can know for sure. And that's how Paul knew that it was the Spirit forbidding them and, and go, to go preach the word in Asia in Acts 16.6, but it was Satan hindering them to go back to Thessalonica and minister to the church of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He knew the difference because they followed God and they knew his voice. And they knew how Satan operated. And God has given us access to those same things through his word. We can know God's voice and we can know when it's a stranger's voice. Something else we need to understand about God in the midst of navigating roadblocks is number two. He will accomplish his purposes. He will accomplish his purposes. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy, listen, they had this godly desire within them to to go back to the Thessalonians after having been run out of town and, and go back, and they wanted to see their face, and they wanted to perfect their faith, but Satan hindered them so that they couldn't do what they intended. But you know what? Satan meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Because you know what happened as a result of that hindrance from Satan? Satan's hindrance was the motivation behind Paul, Silas, and Timothy writing the book of 1 Thessalonians. If they, if they, could, if they could have seen him in person, they wouldn't have written the book. That's the reason we have this book of 1 Thessalonians, because they couldn't get to them in person. So not only did the church of the Thessalonians have their faith perfected by the writing of the book of 1 Thessalonians, 2,000 years later, a church named Cali Harbin Baptist Church could be perfected by the same book. And countless other churches and individuals all along the way. God's purposes were fulfilled because now the Thessalonians were perfected in their faith and we can be too. And so when Satan is hindering us and he's setting up these roadblocks in our lives, we can continue pressing forward and look for God to turn that roadblock into something beautiful and something supernatural. So that's some insight into how God works and it's some insight into how Satan works so we can know who done it but but just like any any good mystery or any good case of who done it you have to ultimately figure out the motive don't you that's usually how these shows end is why in the world did they do what they did number three the the motive what is causing the one who perpetrated the crime to do what they did there's there's always a motive what, what was Satan's motive for hindering Paul, Silas, and Timothy to travel back to see the Thessalonians? Why waste his time on that? He's, I'm sure he's busy. He's got other people he could be hindering. Why, was he hindering. why was he hindering them? And I believe that the motive is laid out for us in the remaining two verses of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians because Satan understands the eternal nature of the work that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were doing. Look at it with me in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. You see, Satan understood the same exact thing that Paul, Silas, and Timothy understood. He understood the eternal nature like we saw in 1 Thessalonians 3.10 earlier, he understood the eternal nature of Paul, Silas, and Timothy perfecting the faith of the Thessalonians where it lacked. Satan understood the eternal nature of their work. He, he understood the eternal nature of what we would call discipleship. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they understood that in investing the word of God into the souls of men is what life is really all about. They, they hoped for and, and they, they took joy in those people that they 
had ministered to and invested in. They took joy in the thought of them standing one day in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and being able to give Him the glory that He deserves. They gloried in those that they had invested in and, and discipled. They, 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 they gloried in them. They had joy in this life and they knew that it was even going to bring them joy in the next life. The Thessalonians were their reward. <laughs> That's what the hope of, of Paul, Silas, and Timothy's lives were. That, that day when, when, when those that they'd reached with the gospel were standing in the Lord's presence when he returns. Can I ask you to think about where your joy is this morning? Maybe some of us don't have joy because we've never tried to find it in the only place it can truly be found. It can only be truly found through Christ and in the eternal. Can I ask you to think about where your, where your hope is? When I ask that, does your mind immediately go to the temporal or does it go to the eternal? You see, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, their hope and their joy and their glory and, and verse 19 even, even references that, that they would receive the crown of rejoicing when the Lord comes back. It was, it, it was all in the way they invested the word of God into, to the souls of men. That was their hope and joy and glory. Investing the word of God into the souls of men. It was about the eternal. In, in 3 John, in, in verse 4, it, it says... I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. These are spiritual children. John had no greater joy than to hear that his spiritual children were walking in truth. He understood the eternal ramifications and, and the reward of that. You know where we tend to find our glory and joy, ironically enough? in our physical children. <laughs> and man, there's a beauty to that, right? God designed it to be that way, but he did it so that we'd see it that way in the spiritual realm with our spiritual children. And you see, Satan under, understood that. Satan is seeking to counter and counterfeit everything that God does. And so in an effort to counter the work of the Lord that's going on in the lives of the Thessalonians, Satan hinders Paul, Silas, and Timothy from seeing them in, in, in hopes that they won't ever be able to go back and, and go back and perfect that which was lacking in their faith. That was Satan's motive. He hates God so much that he's constantly working against him, and he knows good and well the same thing Paul, Silas, and Timothy understood that bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ through the lives of the Thessalonians, that that thing actually had eternal value. So Satan wanted to put a stop to that thing. It, you see, many of the Thessalonians were, they were already saved, weren't they? They were, all, they were already saved, but, but if Satan could defeat them before Paul, Silas, and Timothy could perfect that which was lacking then he could re render them useless for the work of the Lord moving forward. Do you see that? In that, there's another classic case of who done it and why. 
But 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 here's what I but here's what I want to make sure that that we that we grab this morning. Satan is actively at work in our lives to defeat us and to keep us from our eternal purposes that God has for us as we invest the word of God into the souls of men. And and as we navigate doors opening, doors shutting in our lives and Through God's word, we can understand how Satan works and how God works. And as we follow God, y'all, we can know his voice. And we can know if this is a roadblock from Satan to defeat us, or is this a roadblock from God to redirect us? God wants us to invest in people, y'all, but Satan is going to constantly be doing everything he can to come against that thing. But as we minister to others and as we follow God, we will know his voice. Father, we, we thank you for the, for the truth that we learn from your word today. I pray, God, that we would, we would passionately follow you so that, so that we know your voice and we know when it's a stranger's voice. And we can open, we can, we can walk through the doors that you have for us. We can understand doors that you're shutting so that you can redirect our paths and we can understand which one is which. And God, I pray as we're, as we're navigating those things in our lives that we would understand what Satan understands and we would understand what Paul, Silas, and Timothy understood in that there's something eternal at stake here. Satan is at work, but the reason he's working is he's working to defeat us from investing in things that are eternal, from glorifying the Lord with our lives, God. May we, may we seek you passionately every day through the pages of your word and prayer, God, and may we understand your voice, and we love you, Lord. Amen.